Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 29th, 2020 podcast. Welcome back. Today's learning will be focused on a Q&A that I read um, regarding Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. It's a new site that I'd actually never heard about before. Um, if you are familiar with the CNBC archive of Berkshire videos. Um, this is actually kind of a precursor to that. If you don't know about the CNBC archives, well, you're in luck. Um, it's honestly a treasure trove of all the, I think, Berkshire Hathaway interviews, like the shareholder annual meetings from, I want to say, the 1960s onwards. Like they, I think they have practically every year. Um, or maybe it only goes back to the 90s. I can't remember, but it dates back pretty far. And it's... They also have like various topics that they've also kind of pulled out into specific clips. Uh, if you want to tackle, I don't know, maybe Buffett's view on airlines or banks, for example. So that's kind of the modern day version uh, that I've been using before. But I learned thanks to the Focus Compounding podcast about this website called BuffettFacts.com or BuffettFAQ.com. And it's just this whole compilation of all the years of Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, as well as Buffett's own, I guess, various talks that he's given in various like universities and conferences. And this individual who, I guess, created the website, just, I'd say, categorized everything to various um, elements. So, you know, whether it's on industries, whether it's on how Buffett thinks about business or management, for example. And for me, the initial uh, interest was actually in what's Let's look at all the collection of stuff that Buffett talked about in regards to management and culture. And so that's practically the meat of what I want to talk about today. Um, I'm just kind of talking about all the stuff I learned from reading through all the uh, question, the Q&A component of anything that had to do with management and culture for organizations. And there were also a few, I'd say, kind of, uh, I don't know, appetizers, (laughs) side dishes that I specifically went into in regards to like um, mistakes that Buffett uh, has talked about or businesses that he's kind of mentioned about, you know, you should buy or you should avoid, th- things on that nature that kind of um, piqued my own interest. And I, I think something I also want to think about, uh, I note, is also um, as, as the podcast evolves, I've been continuously thinking about how I would try to incorporate um, the various kinds of episode styles. Like I know in the past I've had episodes that talked about specifically companies I've analyzed and done like a bigger, longer research report on. And I'll talk about that and, or like book reviews, for example. And recently it's more been the combination of learning medleys compared to also kind of the interview style podcast I've done in the past. So I'm continuously juggling um, with that, but something that has recently occurred is that it seems like I will in the very near future be, um, employed by uh so i'll have a job it sounds sometimes weird to say it but because of that um the schedule i'll have will definitely shift and so 
but and I think that's natural coming with having a full time job compared to just running everything on your own, like I've been doing, especially with OMD Daily. So because of that, it will limit the kind of I think、mm, type of episode or interviews and、uh, content that I can produce for the podcast. I don't really know what the proper terminology is, but because of that, I've been ex- I am going to experiment with more. Talking about various like maybe research papers that I read,、um, I'm, I have this growing reading list of long form research papers and kind of more ideas and just blog posts that I wanted to look into, and so I might have more of these kinds of learning medley style episodes、um, that are more shorter and that are just me kind of dissecting somebody else's work really, and but I'm still going to try to keep up on a regular cadence、um, episodes related to,、uh, I guess. Company research, book reviews, etc., and also constantly trying to find ways to incorporate interviews with people who are involved in the investing in people realm. So that's kind of an update.、Um, if you are a regular listener, this matters to you, and if you know people are not regular listeners, I guess it won't really matter to them too much. But yeah, that's that's the update on that that I wanted to fill you in on. And so today I'm going to talk deeper into the management and culture piece that Buffett t- tends to、um, answer. And I broke it down into、um, so these are, these notes are all available at the、um, specific episode page at omdventures.com. So really do check it out, and I also have the link to buffettfaq.com、um, that you can click into, so you can do your own digging and look at stuff that you're actually more interested in.、Uh, if what I talk about is not interesting for you, or if you have you know、um, adjacent interests, for example. But in regards to management and culture, I broke. The key learnings out into let's say six categories.、Um, the first being the required number one trait、uh, as being passion, and this is a continuous theme that I was actually surprised by.、Um, it, it I don't know if it's it's the recency bias thing where、uh, so I've been listening to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting annually since 2016, and I've been collecting all the annual reports as a shareholder since then.、Um, But in those ones, I don't necessarily remember Buffett being so vocal about the importance of passion for managers. But after going through the entire section on all his Q and A management, it's just a continuous theme where Buffett is talking about the importance of passion for business owners. And to hear someone like Buffett, who is quite、um, rooted in first principles, rooted in data and just fundamentals, constantly talk about the importance of passion and even this love of the business.、Um, As like the most important trait, just even more important than integrity, more important than in,、uh, in basic intelligence, it it really for me like meant more than if some you know PhD person told me a passion was very important, right? So I I thought this was very important to consider. Like Buffett notes how、uh, money managers need temperament, and that's something Buffett says is kind of one of his competitive advantages. Temperament, which also leads to the ability to be patient. But he also notes that business owners need passion. So if money managers, investors need temperament, business owners need passion. And he said the big indicators he looks for are people, especially when brokers looking to acquire them. He's looking for for managers and CEOs who are not looking to sell the business to broker purely、um, with just making a profit in mind, just looking at the cash. For example, he wants to invest in people and buy business from people who. Are in it for the long haul. They love the business so much, and they're just coming to Berkshire to find a home for their business、um, for you know periods after they die. But also maybe it's you know to realize some of the 
value that they had created um, so that they can, you know, preserve financial security for the rest of their family, etc. But he's continuously looking for people who just love the business, who want to run the business until they die. And the recurring example he uses, um, if you're a regular listener, you'll know about the Nebraska Furniture Mart, and he's constantly referenced Mrs. B before. And once again, this reference continues, continuously comes up uh, in various annual uh, Q&As where he talks about how, yeah, Mrs. B ran Nebraska Furniture Mart until 103 years old, and she died at, when she was 104. And this is kind of what Buffett calls as a standard for what is loving the business. Like you love it so much that you want to um, practically do it until you die. And that's the similar mentality that Warren and Charlie Munger, uh, his vice chairman, embrace, right? Like Charlie is what, 96, 97 now? And although he was not part of this year's Berkshire annual meeting, he's been there every year um, prior to this year. So these are, I think, the standards that they incorporate as that's what passion is, that's what love for the business is. And in a in addition to passion, so I said passion's the most number one important trait, the other three that they com- continuously also um, refer to are intelligence, energy, and integrity. And Buffett says, if you don't have the last one, the first two will kill you. <laughs> in, in essence, kind of saying that you're just going to be a very well-motivated crook in that case. And I think in previous uh, talks, he's referenced um, was that Enron, Ken Lay at Enron as a key example of that, where you had a really intelligent and energetic individual who just lacked integrity. And well, that led to a massive uh, fraud right there. But uh, those three are continuous themes, but I think the passion theme just continues to um, percolate throughout the Q&A. And I think that was just quite fascinating. And he just continuously emphasizes that even in when selecting good managers, um, when he selects good managers, he he says that they stick out like star athletes, like no one is perfect. So it's always a judgment call. And I think that's also very important. Um, he talked, I think an analogy he uses, which I loved is that um, he had a friend who was obsessed with finding the perfect woman for 20 years. And when he found the perfect woman, she said she was looking for the perfect man. And so he never qualified. And I think that that's the important thing to consider too, where you can't be so stringent to find the perfect manager and that manager might not exist. Um, but when they, they still will have enough of a quality that they still stand out. Um, just like how you know, like this star athlete, when you see it, um, when they're playing baseball, for example, like you just know, uh, you know, 0.4, hitter. Um, and usually if they've done that, they can, once they, or if they've done that for a number of years, you can, you can kind of expect them to cons- cont- consistently do it over time. And another thing he talks about in selecting good managers is how they don't have to uh, work so hard at figuring out, you know, in a group of 100 people, ranking them, like who's going to be the top, who's going to be the lowest, because there seems to be, as he says, like a natural selection process where a lot of the incompetent managers are weeded out by the time um, brochure gets to them. And it could also, it could be like a mix of size where, Generally, if you run a profitable business that, you know, maybe is like a billion dollars in market cap, for example, um, you might not actually be that incompetent, right? You might not be a great manager, but you might be competent. Um, the, the chances that you are a great manager who's incompetent, uh, so you're, sorry, that you're a passionate manager who is incompetent is probably rare because if you're incompetent, then you probably wouldn't have, 
have been able to build such a relatively large and profitable business. And so by the time um, Berkshire Hathaway gets to actually look at managers that kind of get through various kind of filtered cycles of just basic profitability, basic strength of business model, um, you're then just kind of handpicking for managers who actually have passion and love for the business compared to those who just want to cash out. And so that's a much easier game to play. And I think that's a continuous theme, right? Buffett always talks about um, positioning himself into areas where he has some kind of advantage and also situations that are just so easy that it's just like um, he's stepping over like a six-inch six hurdle compared to a six-foot hurdle, um, like a two-foot hurdle, for example. And this leads to the topic of assessing CEOs and... Because that's another big question, right? Like, well, okay, so let's say they, you find them, um, you get a group of like 10, some, 10, 10 odd CEOs and managers, and they seem to be running great business models uh, or great businesses. And But how do you assess it? Like, how, what does Buffett think about that? And I think some key parts here, um, I'm not going to read all the notes that I took. Um, I think the big thing that uh, is continuously mentioned is the importance of track record. And... It's a track record that doesn't include things like pedigree um, or just like the feeling you get from meeting someone. Um, I think Buffett rarely talks about how he met someone and he just knew this guy was a genius. It's more so, I think even when he picked the person to lead the uh, Salomon Brothers or Salomon Partners, is it? The investment bank that when he took, took it over, he, I think, interviewed 12 different candidates for 15 minutes each. And so it's not that he takes a long time to get to know a person, to get familiar and kind of has that people side. Like he continuously mentions how um, there are many cases where he's never even met management, but just by reading annual reports and looking at what they've done with the business and letting the numbers kind of tell the story of their execution, that's how he assesses track record. And so what he, that's it's what he calls find people who bat, who batted, you know, 350 for 10 to 50 years and I think that's like the key thing of why it's important to look at the historical data um, as a sense of well not only is the business model you know relatively stable like whether it has a competitive advantage or not but also can show some kind of indication of whether management has the ability to consistently execute and sometimes it might not just be financial metrics right there are some other key metrics that are more important um, to various business models. And that can kind of show you what management does, especially when you look at metrics that are more within management's control. Uh, this I'll probably talk about this a little more later in the compensation section, but, you know, for example, some things are like, if you are, if it's a very capital intensive business and it's very, um, the business is dependent on fluctuations in commodity prices, Buffett talks about how, well, then he'll look at how the company's controlled cost um, like the cost of production, because that is within the management's control. And so if a, if that key metric is completely neglected or it seems like management is kind of upselling it or kind of making excuses, then for Buffett, that is the indication of kind of uh, a lack or not a lack, but more so, I guess, um, a non-existence possibly of the track record that he's looking for. And what else? But yeah, something else, um, this is kind of a connection I was making while thinking about the the thing with great managers. Like Buffett, there's this one segment where Buffett talked about this study where he there was some kind of correlation related to the success of companies with management who tended 
or entrepreneurs who started companies earlier when they were younger. And it reminded me of the essay that Mark Seller, um, a prominent hedge fund manager from the past, uh, he wrote an essay on how to be a great investor. And that's a very popular essay that I talked about in a previous episode. And in that essay, um, Seller talks about how there's a lot of these fundamental key factors, key I think it was these seven personality traits that are required to be a great investor like a Buffett or a David Einhorn, for example, um, and you know you can uh, you can have your own group of very talented investors, even like a talented CEO like Jeff Bezos, who is really an, you know ar- arguably a great capital allocator and investor as well as a CEO as well. And if I think about that and how a lot of it has to be built kind of in your adolescence and you see signs of it earlier on, um, that could actually be uh, applicable for management as well. Like it makes me think about how. There are various data on how people will say, oh, yeah, um, you." I think there's some studies that talk about how some the number of startups that are started by more experienced individuals in their 30s or 40s tend to have more, more uh, greater success or more cons- consistency in achieving a certain, let's say, scale compared to startups that are started by, let's say, like, you know, 20-year-olds or much younger people. And some people say, like, there's a difference in ex- life experience as well as, you know, the network you have and the cloud of influence you have, etc. And I'm not, um, you know, saying any of those studies are right or wrong or kind of agreeing on any of it, but it just make, it makes me think about, well, what what's the deeper underlying factor there? Like, would those people have been successful if they just started earlier, it's just that they started later. But, you know, what if they already had the capabilities, like they already had the traits that would have allowed them to do that like earlier on. So it's, it's just kind of maybe putting some possible um, research time into learning about the early stages of someone's career. Um, I think what I learned, at least from when I did the accounting for podcasts, is that a lot of the entrepreneurs that I met they tended to have a very, uh, I don't know, not so much a vibrant, but it seems like they always had this entrepreneurial gene earlier on in their youth. Like they were starting businesses and trying to make money some way. Just like, you know, how Buffett was just so obsessed with building businesses. And I think when he was in high school, he was making more than his uh, teachers, for example. And I think those stories can actually give you some kind of indication. Like it reminds me of the story uh, that I learned um, about Uber and how when Travis Kalanick founded Uber, that was his third company. But the first two were also both, um, I felt that the big theme was a company that disregarded rule of law and uh, got pretty messy and involved in, um, you know, legal suits for doing things that were illegal and he just kind of pushes onwards and just builds a business without really caring for the repercussions of it. And that's the kind of same way that Uber kind of grew out as well. And so in one way, it's like that would have told a story about an individual who maybe won't learn from that. And it's just kind of going to continue down that trade. And every other company that he creates will continuously not uh, adhere to like the rule of law, for example, like being a rule breaker is great, but when you're breaking laws to do it, um, it can also make it, a pretty bumpy ride and speaks to some way of the individual's character as well. So this was a thought that I had um, in regards to like evaluating management. Like as I look at companies, maybe uh, it is important to also spend time 
you know, listening to interviews where they do try to maybe dissect what the person was like earlier on um, in their adolescence. Like it might be a little, uh, what maybe it's like the Freudian view of looking at the child psychology. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said about how those kinds of earlier experiences can frame how the person will be in the future. And there could be something there. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just a thought. Um, what else? I think another a final point on the assessing of CEOs, I think another one that Buffett talks about, it's actually, and I, th- I think I'll, I'll actually tie this to um, what Buffett and Munger talked about in regards to organization systems and culture, is that the chain of habit is so heavy, and it, it just re- refers to how it's, um, it's just too heavy to be broken, and it will show up in how leaders lead their lives. So, I think that also kind of leads to why Scuttlebutt is important in terms of like, you know, learning about, well, you know, let's say the CEO is getting paid X amount. Like that's kind of one view. You see compensation as one possible signal. Um, but it's also, you know, where do they live? Like what's their habit? What are the habits like? Where, What kind of lifestyle do they lead? And if, for example, they're very disciplined and kind of frugal, um, you know, they're not a, they're, they're kind of thrifty in how they go about their day-to-days, and they're quite humble in how they hold themselves, then that kind of can show you um, how that leadership culture will influence everyone down in the organization compared to a, a culture or a leader who spends a lot, who dresses extravagant clothes, drives a nice car, and that then will push on down to the rest of the company. Like I think from my experience, the the two obvious ones are like when you compare Heineken and Anheuser-Busch. Anheuser-Busch has, like you, I think, if you go into their offices, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, when you go into their offices, it's it's just kind of this dingy <laughs> uh, office with like not so great furniture. You know, you don't get like nice coffees. Um, you know, you have like foam coming out of the chair and stuff. Like everything just looks old. And very low cost, um, you know, things aren't like well matched. Like the furniture's not all like nice and identical. I think that's the uh, image that people get for when they visit the Anheuser Busch uh, headquarters. And they're known to be a very frugal and cost conscious company compared to like Heineken, where you know apparently like when you enter the Heineken headquarters, like they'll offer you like espressos and they have these fancy drinks and you have like a, a waiter slash butler attend to you and it's all like marble and very beautiful. Uh, it's it's different. And that culture kind of percolates into how they would run a company. And that also kind of leads to how I think like Buffett and Munger talk, talked about how um, culture starts with management. And Buffett notes that if you have someone at the top who cares a great deal, that will be evident across the organization. The type of people managing the business is a very important criteria um, because of that. And in in regards to the, I think the habits sec- segment, um, the reason I want to connect the culture side with the habits that the leader has um, is because Charlie Munger uh, notes how every time he tried to change an existing culture in an organization, he said he had a hundred percent failure rate. And Buffett also kind of chimed in in this specific Q and A where he said, "Yeah, like changing culture is extremely hard, and you're better off starting a new one from scratch than changing an existing one." And that reminds me of what Ricardo Semler did at Semco, where when he entered the company, when he took took it over from his father, he ended up, I think, firing like 70% of all executive staff on his first day. And some might say that's very brash and that's some very like a naive thing 
um, for a young uh, professional, young executive to do. And that just shows how much he doesn't know about a business. But at the same time, like his argument for that was that, no, like I have to call the existing culture because it's never going to go the way I want. Everyone's going to be set in their ways. And once again, the chain of habit is just too heavy to break. And so in one case, like maybe in situations where you see a company where a new executive comes in and he just completely fires and blows up the entire executive staff, that could actually be a very positive sign for the company, especially if it's in the period of distress. Um, I'm not sure if I would ever look at companies like that. Um, generally, I find those to be very messy situations. And all, and you know, one can say that those are the situations to make money. But I don't know. I, I haven't, uh, at least in my experience, been drawn to such um situations but i think that's something to consider uh, as like a possible mental model um and i think one final note i want to make about the org system and culture category is what charlie munger talks about where he says um actually should i read a quote that he says so as charlie munger says so much of bad behavior comes not from malevolence but from the subconscious justification of poor decisions as being just part of the system best cure is that people that make the decisions bear the consequences so the obvious one is that, yeah, like accountability is extremely important and you want the people at the top to be accountable. But at the same time, I think the bigger message I took out was on how the system and structures in an organization should be, cre- to be put in place to eliminate bad behavior. As much as I think it's important to um, promote good behavior, like, you know, you want to push your top performance forward. Um, I think there definitely is a system that is required for that because I do believe in kind of doubling down on your winners, you know, water your flowers and pull out the weeds situation. But in also one case, when you create an environment for an entire group of people, um, I do think that your environment is a very big determinant um, for how you behave and how you turn out in society, uh, much like how your family environment, your school environment, like the people you hang out with has such a huge uh, impact on who you become. The organizational system, in one way, should be created to um, prevent negative behavior. Now, I think the flaw with many organizational systems uh, isn't that they try to prevent. Um, they do try to prevent bad behavior, but it's at the cost of allowing people to, um, I guess, be adults in in a sense. Like I'm thinking about very like stringent micromanagement you know, techniques where people can't make any decisions on their own. You need all these chains of approval and bureaucracy. And a lot of that is, as much as it's about people keeping people accountable, there also is um, creating unnecessary layers uh, just to make people feel like they're doing something. But And also people will argue that it's so that, uh, you know, you won't have theft and you won't have people slacking. Like a lot of the criticism that I remember people would give to me when I would talk about how valuable remote work would be. And this is like back in 2018. Um, they would say like, yeah, but how are you going to stop people who slack off? And I said, well, you can't. And you're just going to have to hire the right people who you don't believe will do that. And you're going to have to just trust them and maybe, yeah, let them slack off. And that's just going to show up in what they do, right? Or maybe some people can do the work of someone else. Like if someone else takes eight hours to do something, but you have someone who can do it in two hours. Yeah, maybe then they've earned it to slack off for six hours. Um but companies sometimes just want to micromanage. And so they just are so afraid of that remote working nature. And so in one ways, they, could, they might say that, oh, well, uh, having an in-office system that doesn't allow remote work is a way to limit that kind of bad behavior. But really, is that what it is? Because that can 
create other kinds of bad behavior where um, the individual will have contempt for the organization and feel resentment towards it. And so they will commit minor thefts in many other ways. And that's kind of, I think, what a lot of studies have shown where it costs, I think, companies upwards of like $4 million a year when you have discontented uh, employees and like, um, I forget the company size, but this is a, a research report that I did, uh, I think a year or so ago. Um, but there's a lot of different studies that talk about the actual cost it actually has on a company's bottom line when they have a, lo- a certain number of employees that are, um, that have this, you know, who are discontent with the job and specifically towards your organization. But yeah, I think the the structure of setting up a system that limits bad behavior is different from such micromanagement. It's more so like putting in incentives in place so that people are less likely to commit theft, less likely to commit fraud, uh, who won't make up you know fake accounts to hit meaningless uh, quotas and goals, and being so adam- like adamant about that. Like eliminating those can actually be very good for the company and those are the kind of bad behaviors you actually want to eliminate right so once again i thought that was pretty interesting um it's always kind of the munger's version of always thinking about you know inverting and inverting and inverting um a particular problem like instead of focusing on what system will make people the best maybe create a system where people just won't be the worst version of themselves like what do you have to do so that people just won't be the worst version the uh do the minimum that they can do right uh, and then I'll just kind of talk about the compensation um, and the board of directors. It kind of ties in. So compensation, I think this is a very big topic. But overall, I think the overall theme is, yeah, like Buffett and Munger believe in rational compensation, nothing new there. Um, but I think the most interesting part was on the, this is not so much how to fix management, but just the mental model to keep in mind where Munger talks about how he believes envy is a dead. I think it was Munger above it. Either way, they said envy is the deadliest sin of all. And they consider envy to be the deadliest sin because it's the only one that just makes you completely miserable, whereas the other person doesn't really care, right? Like um, Buffett jokes that there is a place for greed and there is a place for lust and you can have good things come out of both. But envy is one where it nothing good ever comes out of having envy. You just become, you're, you just make yourself miserable, whereas the person you're envious of doesn't know that and they are really not impacted by it at all. Sometimes they come up better off because you're envious of them. And this is a comment that they made in relation to compensation too, where especially with the um, publicizing of compensation for a lot of executives, although an executive might believe that they're being paid fairly right now for what they do, they will be envious of certain, you know, maybe perks that another CEO gets, right? Like if, if a CEO of, X company gets the private jet if you might think well well you know i'm doing a great job and i am getting paid fairly but man that guy's getting a jet i, I want a jet too and it's not just ceos it's just everyone like i i think i experienced it too personally in, in terms of like you know mm, like do i get this kind of perk do i get this kind of benefit well other companies get this my friend gets this well why don't i get that and i'll be a little envious of it and you know the base the most basic premise is like you know uh, social media for example but it's it's something that is prevalent uh, in the industry and it's more so it's just as it's important to have competition that is fair it might actually be very important to um, look at management who tries to 
tackle this uh, battle with envy? Like, how how do they deal with it? Right? Do they address it? Like, if like I think it'd be amazing if I actually saw a manager who says, yeah, like you know, I like if they admit like yeah, I'm sometimes envious of like X Y Z executive, um, but they kind of hold fast and they focus on kind of going their own race. Like, I think you know maybe an, a signal could be a company that has extremely low compensation. That could be one. Or it could be a CEO who um, pays themselves much less than their other counterpart uh, C-suite executives. Like These could be various signals. Um, not, I'm not saying those are you know the cause and effects, but they could be possible data to consider. And just keeping that in mind of how does, you know, does the executive kind of exude any kind of comment or behavior that shows that they are aware of it and they're trying to like fight against it or that they're just kind of not as um, severely impacted by it as others um and then there's <laughs> there's a there's a lot of comments where i think uh buffett and munger both just rail on um, hiring compensation consultants and how they're just it's just a complete waste of money it's never a positive sign and i think the very obvious um thing here is just on, on just the, the idea of incentives right like if you hire a compensation consultant when will you ever have a compensation consultant that comes to you the ceo and says you're getting overpaid this is you know ceo pays completely irrational in the u.s and we you know you should get paid like 50 percent uh of what you get paid now right they're going to get laughed at the door the comp- compensation consultant is going to probably lose their jobs now if they don't lose their jobs after doing that that is a huge signal right because it goes against a complete incentive structure um of the entire industry, but in most cases, when uh, when I read proxy statements, when they'll you know they'll talk about how oh we brought in these new compensation consultants, sometimes it goes well. It's kind of like bringing in a new auditor. It, it, they might have brought up something you didn't like, and so they'll say, "No, we're just gonna bring on people who will say exactly what we want." And yeah, many compensation consultants will suggest getting paid. You know, suggest that the CEOs get paid more because obviously they'll say, "Yeah, look how special you are. Look how much you're doing." and you know, when you pat someone else's back, they will pat your back, and that's how you get paid. Which kind of talks about the, the system of boards as well, right? In many cases, um, Munger talks about how board directors should should be paid next to nothing, uh, or just nothing at all. And I'm in total agreement with that sentiment. Where, yeah, like being on a board of directors is a privilege. It shouldn't be considered a job in any case. Um, that's just my belief. Like you're there to help guide someone who's doing something who's supposed to be doing something amazing you're not there to just you know just what is it what does a mosquito do just suck money out of the company to suck money out of the shareholders like i've seen companies where the board directors are making half a million dollars a year for what attending like 10 12 meetings a year like that's nothing and some people say that's justified because you have all these years of work experience but really you're not doing anything a board doesn't really do anything they give advice and stuff but in many cases, like they should be like Bill Campbell, um, you know, the trillion dollar coach where you, he doesn't get paid anything, but he's probably more valuable to the Silicon Valley CEOs that he's coached than any other board members really were. So in that case, I think that's something to really look out for, um, especially in the proxy statements. I do like to pay attention to how much a board member gets paid and how their compensation works out. Um, in many cases, I think there's also that misalignment of incentives there where if, you know, CEOs choose board members to go on the compensation committee and when they have that formation um, that compensation committee made up of quote-unquote independent board members they're gonna continue to promote irrational pay for CEOs because especially if the board members are paid a lot I mean 
the more a board member gets paid, the less independent they become because now they want to continuously get paid more. So then, you know, they will continuously kind of suck up to the CEO who really is in charge of the company um, in many cases. So I think that also creates a very um, misaligned incentive system, which you want to be very much aware of. So board construction and how they operate is a very important thing too, I think. Um, I don't know, maybe a, a model could be like really short proxy statement letters <laughs> because sometimes I look at really long ones and I go, what's the point of this? Why It sometimes looks like a long list of justifications instead of here are some very simple ways we want to compensate people. And that's just what Buffett talks about too. He says compensation should be extremely simple. Like it's just common sense. And he talks about how even when they run Berkshire, um, they have some, you know, like 70 plus businesses. They each have different economics. And so Buffett actually works to works and talks with each CEO to understand what they do and actually create the best strategy. That's a win-win for both Berkshire and the manager. Like he continuously, I think in many cases, says it's not rocket science. You should never really need an HR department that would tell you all these formulas. Like he talks about how um, an HR department would be a disaster, um, and they would have like people telling them all sorts of like weird different equations. And so Buffett likes to take charge and actually work it out and set all make all the decisions there um, with the CEOs that he's working with. Um, and he continuously also emphasizes the need to tie compensation to some form of capital, like return on capital metric, especially if it makes sense. Um, but always kind of keeping in mind the more higher level important thing of a compensation should always be tied to factors that are within the individual's control. Like I mentioned with the uh, example with like the capital intensive business, where if you uh, are very, if the business is affected very great uh, in a major way by commodity prices, then you should really focus on costs because that's what the executives can control. And generally, I think it also leads to how I think Buffett's mentioned this in the past, where when you look at certain companies and business models, really there are just a few uh, key metrics that really matter, that really will determine the success of the business, right? Um, like I think uh, if you think about large social media companies, for example, like the, the big thing is attention, right? Attention as in like the engagement and the amount of like users that the entire ecosystem has. Like that's the big thing. Like that's the measure that really matters. Um, because once you have that, then that's when the advertisers come, etc. And in some cases, you might be able to create that, but you might not be able to convert. And that actually creates a very, you know, then you create another big question of why can't they convert? Um, what, what is this, uh, let's say, platform lacking? And I think that is uh, something that a lot of people talk about for like Twitter or like TripAdvisor, where they have a lot of users and they seem to have some kind of engagement, but they can't convert it compared to like Facebook. But those are like the key metrics that you really want to look at. You're not so focused on like, well, what's the what's the EPS here? What's the operating margin here? Or I don't know, like some other weird business metric that probably won't be as important. Like I don't know, the creation of new products every year, for example. Um, you see all that by how much engagement they would have. Like in one way, it's the most simplest form. It's like in a 24-hour period of a person's day, how much of that is owned by Facebook? And is that pie growing or is that pie shrinking? And you know, the ability to continu continuously own a percentage of a person's daily life really kind of shows how strong that um, particular business would be, right? Because that also shows attention. So I think that's those are the things to consider when you think about compensating. Like I think the dumbest way of compensating is by share price um, movement because that is completely out of the management's control. To believe that it is means that the person should really just become a fortune teller 
um, and not even be a CEO because you, you obviously know how to control share prices, right? So that's kind of my rant. Um, and also just kind of overall what I took away from all the uh, FAQs on the website in regards to management and culture. I think a couple of things I want to just kind of add. Um, I know it's kind of, we're kind of going over the 30 minute mark usually, but I thought these were pretty cool. Um, it, and these are not exhaustive, I think. At least from reading these answers, I was like, oh, I think there's something definitely more that Buffett said for sure. But in regards to like businesses to buy and avoid, Buffett talks basically like, you know, the, and Munger chimes in that the formula has never, it's consistent and it really hasn't changed. You want to buy businesses that operate on negative capital. Uh, and it's so crazy to actually read this. And like Buffett's been saying this like in the early 2000s, for example, where he's like, you want to buy a business on, that operates on negative cash uh, capital, like magazine subscriptions, insurance, things people pay for first. And then you immediately go, huh, yeah, it kind of makes sense why, you know, SAS is a pretty solid business model. <laughs> because you have float ahead of time or like these enterprise software companies where you pay a year in advance for using the ERP system for like an entire year and it just goes oh man that was so obvious like if we just listen to Buffett and kind of maybe really try to understand what he said in like the early 2000s or even in like the 90s period when he even continuously said this um, you it just kind of clicks right so he says, yeah, a negative op- uh, a business that operates in negative capital is really great um, when they have when they run really low uh, capital, like you know, very minimal reinvestment requirements uh, to continue to compound. That's great. And specific industries he talks about are like service businesses and consumer businesses, um, which is interesting, especially given uh, I think his big knowledge of utilities companies and financial companies that. He specifically noted that service businesses and consumer businesses were actually great. And I think it actually, they tend to be um, industries that have just done particularly well. I think um, I think it was Jeff Gannon from Focus Compounding who talks about how he believes that 50% of the returns of a, a business are uh, based on the industry that the business is in. And, you know, Terry Smith from Fundsmith also believes a good chunk of that where they just kind of pick set industries that have always had relatively high return on capital and they'll just find great companies in that industry um, instead of going out of your way to be like, oh, let's look at mining and pick the best mining company, right? The, the entire industry sucks. Then the best company in a shitty industry isn't really going to be that great of a company, right? And so you're just really playing the odds there. So I thought it was cool that Buffett specifically pointed out service-based businesses and consumer-based businesses as um, particularly strong industries to look into. Ones to avoid are where you are... In, Companies and industries where you have to continuously reinvest in the same thing as everyone else. Uh, it's just where it's like a crowded market where what you're reinvesting is, is first obvious and second, it can be replicated. Um, like in one way, like I was thinking about the modern day case where I think many software companies know that reinvestment into talent and great, you know, great engineers for software companies is it's, it's very obvious but it might actually be really hard to replicate if the culture doesn't support it. And so that could be one where, you know, at least for me, that's a lot of the thesis that I uh, try to create when looking at companies. But I don't know, maybe that's applicable, maybe it's not. It's something I'm continuously researching, but that's a thought that I had while thinking about this. And I think I'll, uh, I'll just talk about this final one um it's about mistakes and so buffett says that 
we can learn something perhaps from the mistakes, but the big thing to do is to stick with the businesses you understand. So if there's a generic mistake outside your circle of competence, you're buying something that somebody tips you on or something of the sort. In an area you know nothing about, you should learn something from that, which is to stay with what you can figure out yourself. So that's a quote from Buffett. And I thought that was quite uh, enlightening. Like it might sound obvious, but like I realized from listening to this, like the, the, the big mistake is stepping out of your circle of competence. The big mistake is actually doing investing in something you had no business investing in and, and not understanding. And also another big mistake is not swinging, um, a mistake of... Um, what is that? Omission, um, not, not swinging in something that you understood. And Buffett continues to talk about these themes as like the mistakes he's made, where the mistakes really weren't, um, you know, buying something that, or like missing something that he had no idea about. But the big thing was missing something that he actually knew and he actually had a solid chance. Um, I think, yeah, those are the ones that really hurt because those actually were something that you could have executed on. Um, for example, like, and Buffett talks about one of the reasons why he bets big is because the mistake was that when he bets small in something he understood, he ended up kind of missing his chance. And I think that's something I do tend to lament quite a bit about too, where um, I'll take on positions that are not full positions and the stock kind of runs up faster than I expected it would and it makes me kind of get a little queasy about it. Um, and I think it's really hard psychologically to then think, well, is it still a good good price valuation now? Like It's sometimes really hard to do that. And if I, you know, bet big in a business that I actually felt like I understood really well, then, you know, I would have avoided that particular mistake and the opportunity cost that resulted from that. So I think that's definitely, that was a very good uh, segment on mistakes to consider. And it also puts into frame the idea of like, yeah, like, you know, sometimes like, it is a mistake to sometimes chase, you know, trends and you know, to get overly greedy and completely forget fundamental analysis, right? It, it, is, it is a mistake. Of course, there are mistakes. But the the bigger mistake is to get into something that you just didn't understand, right? Um, although you have mistakes in chasing fads, etc., but the bigger thing is the fact that you went to something you did not understand and you didn't even want to learn more about. And I think those are, to think about that as the bigger mistake is more important. Um, and the, to then think about, yeah, like then where do you want to play and focusing on the places that you want to play and places on, on companies that you actually want to learn about and study and getting a better understanding of it. And so when you actually understand something, then to pull the trigger. Um, and I think those are the big things. Uh, it might sound weird. And I think when it first, and I think for me, this is a development too, because I've been reading the same things that Buffett has said, but each time I read about it, after I make a, do- a dozen <laughs> mistakes every time, uh, it, it hits me again and go, oh, right, that's what he was talking about. And so once again, this was one other example where um, I'm I'm pretty sure I've read a lot of the same things before in the past, but it's always valuable to kind of revisit very important um, things to learn about. And this was a particularly great chance for me to do that, specifically with the focus on management and culture, because that's the stuff that I'm interested in. And that's kind of what I'm trying to make this podcast become more about. So Hope this was interesting. Hope this was fun. And yeah, I hope to come back to you again with more um, more learning so that we can learn together and become smarter every day. All right, take care.